Welcome to Fishman Radio. I'm your host, Bryce Tapp, and today, my conversation with Fishman's Executive Director, Brian Sutliff. We'll be discussing the African Union Peace and Security Council and its two topics, combating Boko Haram and the Sudans. Brian, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing well, Bryce. Thank you. I hope you're doing well. And obviously, I hope all of our delegates and advisors are doing well, especially during this rather challenging and uncertain time. But again, it's always a pleasure to have the ability to interact with the fisherman community and hope that we can keep keep their spirits up in terms of the various conferences and other initiatives that we are undertaking at this time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. And so my first question is, why the AU? So why did we have the African Union um, as a committee, or why do we have the African Union as a committee this year in our Fishman cycle? When selecting the various committees and topics for any Fishman cycle, we always try to directly tie them to the theme that we have selected for that year. And you and I worked out a theme for the Fishman 42 cycle focused on creating a diplomacy of health, peace, and sustainability. Because you had sent the original concept of creating a diplomacy of peace based upon a statement by Secretary General Guterres. And then in our discussions, we thought, especially with COVID-19, but also keeping in mind the critical challenges of the environment and climate change, that it would be better for us to expand on that and to create a more comprehensive overall theme and then use that theme to guide our selection of committees and topics. Furthermore, delegates have always liked having the UN Security Council for so many reasons, and we love obviously offering the Security Council, but there's always a a request for some more specialized committees when possible, and often on security topics, which is not surprising. And we have offered, of course, the European Union on a number of occasions. We have had the North Atlantic treaty organization, NATO. We have offered the Organization of American States, and we do have that again this year. And we have tried to offer the African Union once before. We have had, I think, the Organization of the Islamic Conference one time. But unfortunately, in some of those previous iterations, the attendance or participation in some of those committees was rather low. And they we didn't really offer the broader penelope of views that we would have wanted to see for an organization like the AU, which has 54 member states today. But if we could offer something like the AU Peace and Security Council, which has 15 countries, that might be much more feasible. It would give us broad regional distribution because that is a big part of the selection criteria for membership in the AU Peace and Security Council. And it would allow us to address a broader range of security topics so that we could have several that are specifically dedicated to the continent of Africa and African security affairs, as well as several non-African Security Council topics in the UN Security Council this year, for instance, Colombia and Yemen. So it really allows us to have a greater diversity of the conflict situations. And these are relevant. The topics themselves are highly relevant. They are really critical to addressing so many of the items that we want our delegates to be aware of and to see their imaginative and creative solutions that are still practicable and feasible 
And we felt that this was just a really good opportunity to try to address a number of the requests from advisors, delegates, and even our staff and be true to our educational mission. So I hope that addressed your question there about why we particularly included the African Union Peace and Security Council for this year. I'm definitely excited to see it on the list of committees. And I'm really curious and intrigued by the potential resolutions and deliberations that the delegates will come to in the course of their debates and discussions on these particular topics. Thank you, Brian. I'm excited too. You know, I was director of security council um, previously, and it was a very exciting to see how delegates approached this very, you know, that sort of intense atmosphere, but also very narrow focus committee. And so I'm excited to see that mirrored um, in the African Union Peace and Security Council. This is a quick question about the AU um, PSC. Does it have any sort of differences in the way that it deliberates or finds solutions um, um, to to topics than previous committees that we've offered? Yeah, great question there, Bryce. And generally, it'll follow largely along the lines of the Security Council itself, but it doesn't have a veto power built in in the same way that the five permanent members of the UN Security Council have the unofficial veto, because that term does not appear in the UN Charter talks about the concurrent votes of the permanent members of the Security Council, but there is that veto power that the permanent five exercise within the UN Security Council. That will not be featured in the African Union Peace and Security Council because they don't have that same sense of permanent membership in the AU Peace and Security Council. Beyond that, the, the rules will be quite similar overall. In terms of a crisis type simulation, because that was probably one of the other implied questions that you might have since our Security Council always has one, that depends partly on timing and also honestly on staff for Fishman itself. As you have become more involved personally in terms of the creation and writing you see the demands in terms of the staffing, you know, particularly you worked this past cycle in home government for the first time, and you were involved more directly in the crisis speaking roles and other elements along those lines, which you had not previously done very much of that. You had been in committee itself, including directing security council with the crisis and having a crisis scenario and simulation, as you've seen, can be quite labor intensive for Fishman. And so to offer more than one will be challenging. I'm not ruling it out right now. That's a discussion that you and I and the organization can have, and also in conjunction with advisors to sort of see their requests and wishes. But it is something that does require additional labor and additional staffing. And so those are just the other considerations. Thank you so much. You're absolutely right. You know, staffing crisis is very exciting, but behind the scenes, it's a whole lot of work. Um, and so I'm really grateful that our delegates see and appreciate that every year. Um, and so switching now into the topics for AU um, Peace and Security Council, we're going to first, you know, it started off as a, as a crisis for Security Council, and here it is as a topic again, combating Boko Haram. So 
delegates may have seen this topic or may not have seen it, um, but Boko Haram started off as a very narrowed crisis scenario um, for those maybe on staff or those advisors listening that remember. Um, and so how, how, my first question is, how do you see Boko Haram in 2020 um, different from Boko Haram back whenever we had it as a topic when it was in the news um, originally a number of years ago? So how is it, how is that topic transitioned and what does it look like now? Thank you for those questions, Bryce. It, it's, it's evolved, and sadly, it's in some cases metastasized. It's, it's grown, and it's become more virulent in some ways. After largely being out of the Western media, I, I would argue that the people who live in some of the most affected regions, it's never been off their radar whatsoever. But I think, honestly, in the American and much of the Western media, it has dropped off in importance. I think particularly after Boko Haram, in a sense, I don't know if it's correct to say they sort of pledged allegiance to the Islamic State, to their sort of partnership or cooperation, but they have now expanded into areas where they previously didn't operate nearly as aggressively, particularly, say, the country of Chad. They've really created some major destabilization in a country like Chad. And they continue, obviously, to create major problems in Nigeria, in Cameroon, and a number of other countries throughout the region. So if anything, Boko Haram is as dangerous in many cases as it was previously and maybe has expanded into even more areas throughout the region. And that really creates some problems because a number of these governments aren't always on the friendliest of terms with each other anyway. They may not cooperate as extensively as we might hope, even in the short term. And now we throw in the need to combat this evolving and adapting terrorist organization like Boko Haram in the midst, again, of COVID-19, of a global economic recession, and honestly, I think a lot of governments and a lot of observers Terrorism has been de-emphasized in recent months because of the pandemic. It hasn't gone away. It may not be front page news as much in the New York Times or on CNN or you know a whole variety of other outlets, but it's still present in the lives of quite a few people in these affected areas. And unfortunately, governments may find their ability to fight it diminished in the midst of having to address these health these truly legitimate health concerns amidst a pandemic, as well as obviously massively reduced revenues. I mean, Chad is not one of the world's major oil producers, but oil is important to the Chadian governments, particularly in terms of what it spends. Approximately one third of its federal budget is spent on the military. And if oil revenues have plummeted because of falling prices, that's less money they have to perhaps combat something like Boko Haram. Nigeria is a massive oil producer. And obviously, anytime oil drops, that really hurts a country like Nigeria. Cameroon has some oil production. A number of these other countries do too. And so if they don't have those revenues, what do they provide to a lot of the people, particularly in some of the communities where Boko Haram is most likely to operate? And those aren't necessarily always oil-producing regions, but if the oil revenues aren't well distributed, what do the local people really have along like Chad or some of these other areas? And now you confront them with Boko Haram 
and a diminished security presence by the national government, by the African Union itself, to try to combat Boko Haram. Uh, then also, of course, you have the questions about some of the outside powers, you know, some of the major powers in the European Union, maybe the French, the United Kingdom, obviously the United States. To some degree, you see a, a role for the People's Republic of China, possibly even occasionally the Russian Federation in some of these instances. But what are they going to do and what kind of resources they can provide to these governments that are already seeing a major diminishment of their capacities particularly in terms of revenue and basic security functions. Thank you so much for answering that question. Um, and that definitely helps situate this topic and this ongoing evolving crisis um, into the um, in, into 2020. And so, um, so how does the African Union Peace and Security Council fit into this topic? You know, traditionally this was, you know, this was a previous Security Council crisis and so I think, you know, and for Fishman, delegates might be more prone to see, you know, an ongoing crisis like this with the terrorist organization um, in the hands of the Security Council. So how does, how does this topic fit into the AUPSC? And what does, what does a solution look like for the delegates that they might reach possibly in the deliberations? Thank you, Bryce, for those questions. The first priority I would posit for the delegates to the African Union Peace and Security Council is to recognize that even if their country is not situated directly in one of the areas affected by Boko Haram, they should not assume that the impacts will not be felt in their country. They need to recognize a number of commonalities and they need to really be focused on how to get the various regional powers and countries directly affected by this working together. You know, there is something like the G5 where a number of the countries of Sahel each contribute, say, a thousand soldiers to a sort of multinational force designed to combat something like Boko Haram, etc. Okay, what kind of support can be provided? How can they improve the logistics for all of this? What can they do to help these countries come together to recognize we need to be able to work cross-border to address this and to honestly, in many ways, stamp out the problems that Boko Haram has caused, but also address the legitimate concerns of those communities are these security forces, in fact, engaging with the local population in a way that is humane? Are they, in fact, respecting the human rights? Are they respecting the dignities of these communities in ways that they're not suddenly lumping the local population automatically in with Boko Haram? Because Boko Haram has terrorized these areas enormously, and they need to also prove to those communities that they're going to have a longer-term commitment to the communities. And I'm not talking about leaving major military garrisons there or stationing lots of troops or building a base in the area necessarily, unless you really are going to have to do so to combat Boko Haram over the long term. But what are you doing in terms of providing sustainability assistance to these communities to where they won't need a military presence to stave off Boko Haram? Boko Haram 
obviously operates in a lot of areas that are quite impoverished, quite marginalized, and areas where the national rule of law is not really extended into that community very well. Boko Haram does not immediately go head to head with a major army in most instances. That's not the way they've really approached a lot of this and not the way they've grown in many instances because they'd probably be outgunned in a number of instances. They, they'd face real challenges there. But if they break into a school and kidnap a bunch of the young women, they're not confronting an armed military force at that school or in this remote village along Lake Chad or in these far corners of Nigeria and Cameroon and these other countries. And so a lot of it is, I think, emblematic of the fact that the state really doesn't exist that clearly in a lot of these communities. And by ceding a lot of that space, they've made it much easier for a group like Boko Haram to operate there. But they're but those states are still simultaneously very jealous of other states interceding in their territory or these communities, even if they provide virtually no financial and sustainable assistance to these communities that are marginalized. So I think that's part of what they're needing to focus on is how these governments can actually start working together and how they can come up with more of a regional plan to really cut off some of the support for Boko Haram rather than force each country to try to fight them on their own and then just watch them cross the border into the next country. I hope that addressed your questions. No, it did. You're absolutely right. And, um, and that regional cooperation is going to be key, especially if the delegates represent, you know, in this committee's wide range of um, member states in the African union. And so coming together is going to be key. And so moving over, we have the situation in the Sudans. And so this topic is going to deal with, you know, situations in both North and South Sudan. Um, And so um, what's interesting, what connects these topics is this linkage to a colonial past. So, you know, before we address this, you know, do you think that there is something there that delegates should consider, you know, this sort of um, um, this legacy of the colonial um, violence and um, colonization that has happened on the continent? Thank you, Bryce, for those questions. Yes, there are elements of colonial conflicts or some of the the violence committed within colonialism, including the separation of ethnic groups by these national boundaries, these, you know, beautifully straight lines on a map that don't correspond necessarily to the real history of the regions and to the ways in which people live, but have unfortunately then been exacerbated by a number of the problems. Obviously, in the case So the Sudans, there's also the major problems within, at times, racial and ethnic conflicts, the real drive for Islamicizing much of the country in many cases under some of the previous governments, including under Omar al-Bashir, but even predating Bashir to some degree. And then, of course, obviously, the enormous conflicts over oil revenues and the distribution of them in this country, or now two countries of 60 million plus people, with such enormous imbalances between the investments that you see in a city like Khartoum, enormous amounts of Chinese investment in particular in Khartoum and development of these oil fields and these major construction projects. And then you go to villages in remote parts of Sudan or in South Sudan, et cetera, where 
you're talking about countries and regions that are at the very bottom of the human development index in the world and where the resources and distribution are so incredibly skewed. And you are seeing some vestiges of colonialism. You're also seeing, obviously, some more contemporary conflicts that are built into this, and especially that fight over oil revenues mixed in with racial tensions, many of which, again, are are portrayed, I think, in a lot of Western visions as being eternal or timeless and long-standing, and in fact, that's not always the case. Some of these tensions are actually more contemporary creations, or some of them were played up under colonialism. You certainly have seen instances where certain ethnic groups were favored over others, and that led into fighting over even just you know cattle herds for a number of the herdsmen and tribesmen of parts of Sudan and South Sudan. Then, obviously, like I said, the discovery of oil and its exploitation there. And then, obviously, a more aggressive, some cases people have said maybe more militant form of Islam, political Islam, fostered by the authorities within Khartoum and extending that to many more parts of the country. Some have even argued it's more of a process of Arabization, of definitely spreading Arabic itself and tying that into this more restrictive form of Islam, particularly into some communities that are not Islamic in nature or not have previously been primarily Muslim communities. But I think a lot of these conflicts, yes, can be traced to some divisions that were exploited by colonialism, including particularly the British and the French, and especially the British in Sudan, for a number of their own interests that now they have receded largely from the region themselves, the British have, but the conflicts can remain. And like I said, you now have a massive infusion of Chinese capital into certain places further their own economic interests, but that could also then mean that the People's Republic of China finds itself closely allied with the regime in Khartoum. And certainly that can then bring about some other challenges or conflicts that we see within the region. I would also just say, and this goes for the previous topic on Boko Haram and absolutely goes for the Sudans, we cannot forget about Chad, about Libya, about Egypt, you know, Ethiopia and some of these other countries and these borders and the, the challenges that occur there. Thank you so much. That's really helpful to help to contextualize this topic and a broader historical narrative, um, you know, that still manifests in many temporary forms today. And so for the Sudans, because we are dealing with, you know, one of the most recent countries um, that was came into existence and also one of the oldest civilizations as well. What are the main priority areas that you think that the delegates should focus on um, when they begin their deliberations on um, this topic? Thank you for that, Bryce. Yes. South Sudan just recently celebrated its ninth birthday about a week ago and is widely considered to be the world's newest country. You know, places like the breakaway Republic of Azawad in northern Mali and other places have not necessarily been recognized in the same way. But South Sudan's creation obviously was a result 
result of the final winding down, or we hope winding down, of that horrible series of civil wars that plagued Sudan for so many decades, and a comprehensive you know, agreement signed, I believe, in 2005, and then finally the referendum, which was overwhelmingly supported by the people of South Sudan. But even from its inception, South Sudan has been plagued by internal instability and rivalries, as well as obviously enormously overshadowed by its much larger, much more powerful neighbor to the north. You know, we're talking about roughly 10 million people in South Sudan, nearly 60 million in Sudan itself. And and again, with the capital of South Sudan, Juba, right there in some of those oil fields in the south of Sudan and the northern part of South Sudan, very much areas of potential conflict and continuing some of the challenges that we see there. And the governments of the AU Peace and Security Council need to be eminently concerned because if we see any sort of real reignition, restarting of that conflict, of that civil war, that created 5 million plus refugees, killed several million people over 25 years, et cetera, sparked civil wars and conflicts in other countries. You had obviously the what the UN looked at as potential genocide, even the US House of Representatives labeled as genocide in Darfur in Western Sudan between 2003 and 2010. Obviously you've seen proxy wars in many of these other countries. I always am concerned that in these situations, we sometimes try to isolate the conflict and say, oh, well, that's a problem for the people of that particular country or those two countries. But we know that, in fact, it often explodes outward. And clearly, in the context of the continuing instability and violence in a country like Libya and the proximity of Sudan to Libya is really critical. Furthermore, Egypt is still a country that there are enormous concerns about where that government is headed, what the resolution of many of these issues will be. And then you can add a number of other countries throughout the region where you have these concerns. And I would, again, say Chad is another one that we really need to think about. We need to think about the Central African Republic and Uganda. You know, So we do not want to see these conflicts then also start spilling outside of these borders into a number of other areas where, in which they certainly could. And as I said, the People's Republic of China is definitely involved with investment in Sudan. But you could see a number of other major international powers become involved in this type of scenario in these conflicts. And it's not easy to extricate yourself from these conflicts. And we want to see these peace agreements be honored and move forward. Because if they're not honored, if they, if we return to that kind of fighting that we saw 10, 15, 20 years ago, the consequences could be even graver this time around. You're absolutely right. And I think that that's a very good and heavy warning for the delegates as they begin their deliberations. And so, you know, as our conversation comes to a close, I was wondering if you had any parting thoughts um, or advice for the delegates as they will be our inaugural group of delegates in the African Union at Fishman. Um, so um, if you could share that, that'd be great. Yes, thank you, Bryce. Obviously, first and foremost, to the delegates that are the first to debut our African Union Peace and Security Council, I wish you obviously all, all the best, but I'm also really excited to to 
sit in on your deliberations, to observe them, to read your resolutions, to hear about the discussions that you have, because we'd really like to see if this is the type of committee that we can offer going forward in a number of instances. And we do want to make sure that people understand that quite often international organizations are largely ignored or are sometimes marginalized in a country like the United States, because the United States doesn't depend on those organizations to work within its own borders all that much. The United States and others may depend on the UN, the African Union, the OAS, and all these other organizations to work in other countries and to help, in some cases, advance some of their own interests. But they don't see them on a day-to-day basis. But the people of other countries They do see the UN, they do see the African Union, they do see the OAS, they do see these other organizations working right there on the ground, day by day, committed to the peoples of these countries and trying to solve some of the real problems that people face and trying to work with the local communities. And so one of the reasons why it's nice to have a committee like this is to really remind ourselves that so much of the work of these international organizations would be in continents like Africa, would be in places like Latin America, in parts of North Africa and the Middle East, in parts of Southeast Asia or Central Asia, et cetera, places that we don't always think about, we don't necessarily visit in the same way, but the success of these organizations is really dependent upon their successes in these particular conflicts or situations and scenarios which don't dominate the front page of most of our newspapers aren't headline news on our tv screens for more than 15 30 seconds every few months but are real situations that people confront on a daily basis so i just really hope the delegates seize this opportunity and that they're really thorough in their approach and their research because these are challenging, complex topics, but they're ones that really deserve our attention. Thank you so much, Brian. I appreciate this conversation and I know all of our delegates and staff and advisors and other listeners will as well. So thank you so much and hope you have a good day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fishman Radio. On our next show, we'll be discussing the organization of American states. You can find today's show on our website, fishman.org, and wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and share today.